0: David Bidot, Kent Monroe, Omar Shearer, and Jeff Wandich were young Canadian men who were on vacation in Florida. On the morning of November 4th, 1994, they set out from Marco Island into the Gulf of Mexico in Jeff's boat, the Siesta, for a day of fishing and scuba diving. 48 hours later, Wandich was found stranded on a military light tower, the boat had sunk, and the other three men were never seen again. I'm Ed Densel and this is Unfound. Have any of you seen the film The Usual Suspects? I'm sure most of you have. It was very popular, and for those of you who haven't, don't worry. I'm not going to ruin it for you. But it is the perfect representation of a storytelling device known as the unreliable narrator. From the mouth of Kevin Spacey's character, you find out what happened to all of his partners and how they died during a job they were commissioned to do by going aboard a ship and destroying $91 million of cocaine. Well, you find out that, well, like I said, I'm not going to ruin it for you. But what can we learn from that film? It's always precarious to take only one person's word or advice or interpretation or opinion on anything. We don't know their motives. There could be hidden reasons for what they're saying. And we may act on that information then find out later that it was all a lie. This is the reason that it's always good to get more sources and confirmation in life, no matter what you're doing. I run into this a lot on Unfound. As you know, I usually only talk to one person for a case. A family member, a reporter, a friend. Maybe the disappearance of Eric Franks would be an exception where I talk to his mother and a close friend of his. There are risks in only talking to one person. But I try to minimize those risks by finding stories, news reports, etc. to try to back up what that person is telling me. And I'll be honest, I've talked to a few people about disappearances so far who had an agenda and didn't want me to publicize all the facts. These kinds of people won't find time on Unfound because I will not perpetrate lies on you, the listeners. But what if there is only one person who knows something about a disappearance and there are no other witnesses, no cell phone records, no surveillance tapes, no emails, no DNA? Then what? This is a situation we have with this case. This case was actually turned into a book called Vanished in the Gulf, and that's what we're naming this episode. It's a book written about the disappearances of David Medot, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer. And we have one survivor, Jeff Wandich. And because he was the lone survivor, it's his story that is still the story of record over two decades later. And this is according to the Coast Guard and all other law enforcement agencies that looked into this boat sinking and disappearance of these three men way back in 1994. What we're going to try to do on this episode and the next one, we're going to try to figure out if Jeff Wandich can be believed or not. Usually, this is about the time I give you the summary of the case, usually presented by my friend Megan Good's site, charlieproject.org, but we're going to break protocol for this episode. I'm doing this for a few reasons. Number one, I want you to hear the official story, the Jeff Wondich story, from a person who has been personally affected by the disappearance, and that is David Madot's father, Bill Medott, who is the guest for this episode. And he and I agreed beforehand, because I told him how I was going to conduct this episode and next week's episode. He's going to present the official story to you, the Jeff Wantage story to you, with very little opinion from himself or myself. Number two, I'm treating this case much like a trial. This episode, we're going to present the defense of the on-the-record story. That's actually the opposite of how we usually conduct trials in the United States, but on this program... The defense is going to go first. And then next week, we will present the other side of the story. I guess you would call that the prosecution. And all of you, the listeners, will get to be the jury. So over the course of this next week, if you'd like, it will allow you to become more familiar with the case before I present the other side. You can also check into everything that is mentioned in this episode to research it further. Then in the end, after next week's episode... You'll get to render judgment. Is the official story believable or isn't it? Unfound news. There's nothing that fills me with more pride about Unfound than the number of former guests, people who have been emotionally scarred by disappearances, who then turn around and tell others who are suffering that Ed Denzel and his program Unfound is a place where the families of missing people have a voice. The amount of trust and respect these people show me is overwhelming, and it's not something I could have ever imagined happening in my life even six months ago. I want to thank Mary Lyle, Darlene Pitts, among others, who have put in a good word about Unfound. The program is now on TuneIn Radio. I personally didn't even know it hosted podcasts. I thought a program had to be affiliated with an actual terrestrial radio station to be on there. But I found out that I was wrong, and now you can find Unfound there. This is good for the program and the guests who want answers, because TuneIn is a popular streaming radio app that is easily accessible with both Android devices and iPhones. Unfound reached its highest ranking on Podomatic this past week. Out of thousands and thousands of podcasts hosted there, Unfound reached number 66 overall. Really incredible, in my opinion. We're still working on cracking that top 200 on iTunes, but good things usually don't happen all at once. Where you can find Unfound? You can find it on Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. You can find it on Instagram, also at Unfound Podcast. have had a lot of new followers there this past week, a lot of likes of the couple pictures that I've posted. Very excited about that. You can find Unfound on Facebook at the Unfound Podcast discussion group. Always enjoy talking to listeners there, meeting new listeners there. You should be joining the conversation. I think you'd enjoy it as well. I remind you that you can find Unfound at Podomatic and iTunes. You can subscribe and share from both those locations. And I thank all of you for the recent reviews. You can email the program, unfoundpodcast, at gmail.com. And finally, please mention Unfound at all the popular true crime locations, including Reddit, WebSleuths, podcasts we listen to, and all other true crime websites and forums. couple notes about this interview. This disappearance is a complex one to tell because boating and scuba diving are involved. Bill and I tried to keep the wording as ordinary as possible. But if you don't know what a BCD is, and you're not familiar with the term pressurizing and scuba diving, then please, just stop the podcast, look those terms up, and then start it again when you're ready. Because those things are important to know if you're going to understand exactly everything that happened. And I remind you once again, this is the official story, and is supported by the Coast Guard and all other government agencies involved in the investigation of this disappearance. And it all comes from the account that Jeff Wondich gave these entities back in 1994. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Bill Medot, the father of David Medot. Bill, welcome to Unfound.
1: Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Tell the listeners a little bit about your son. Um, Well, my
1: son, David, uh, who was 25 at the time this happened in 1994, is, uh, in my view, a remarkable young man. He um, was very talented in many respects. He was very outgoing, had a lot of friends. He was doing very well in, in business in the company he worked for. He had a lot of interests. Uh, One of which was diving. So he was a young guy, really, with the world in his hand, uh, whatever he wanted to do. So that was a capsule of David.
0: What company did he work for?
1: He worked for a company called Magna International that um, made auto parts for many of the large auto part manufacturers. In fact, built sub-assemblies for them, you know, like dashboards, etc., etc., and Dave had started there after university in, in and in a, a, actually in a very low position, you might say, as a male boy. And he'd worked his way up into um, the human relations uh, department where he would visit different plants that they had and, and try and resolve whatever issues they had there. So he was doing quite well.
0: And how did he know Kent Monroe and Omar Shearer?
1: Well, Omar, uh, Dave has known since they were little boys because they were a neighbor, uh, across the backyard and down a few from us. So he had known Omar since he was a little kid and, and they went to school together and, and high school together. So you might say Omar was the one that he knew the best, uh, very, very well. Now, Omar had a friend, a friend, um, who was Jeff Wanich's uh, brother, a younger brother. His name was Brad. So that was how Omar really met Jeff, who lived several blocks away. But but he knew Jeff uh, through the relationship with uh, Jeff's brother, Brad. And Omar uh, also was a friend of Kent's. And uh, he had introduced Kent to David about two years prior to this um to 1994 so really I guess the connector in all of these was Omar
0: had the four of them and let's include Jeff Wandich in this had David, Kent, Omar and Jeff ever gone on a getaway together a vacation together let's say uh,
1: not the three of them I mean, uh, David had traveled a few times to Florida with some university friends and Omar had uh, traveled to, you know, Jamaica and Florida and what have you with other of his friends, and I imagine Kent did. But this was the first time, I think, that they traveled together. And the way that happened was uh, uh, Dave and Kent had been taking some diving instruction, diving lessons uh, in Canada, and Omar was always uh, already a bit of a diver, and the three of them were talking and saying, hey, is there some place we can go to dive? And to make a long story short, Kent said, look, I know this guy Jeff. He's got a place in Florida. We can probably go down and see him, stay at his place. I'll call him. And that's how it all happened.
0: So all these young men lined up their work schedules so they could go on vacation together, and they went to Florida. What do you remember knowing about this trip? How long were they going to be here? What did you know about it?
1: Well, they were. it was only going to be like a four-day trip, I think a Friday to Monday trip for these guys to come down and, and maybe do a little diving. And, and what they were going to do is they were going to fly into Miami, uh, I think, then rent a car and drive over to Marco, where uh, Jeff's spot was, and do their thing there. And my understanding was they were going to dive at some local places, you know, and and then come home.
0: And this place that they were going to stay, this was going to be a condo owned by Jeff Wondich's father. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, this is correct. A condo in a gated community on Marco Island. Quite a nice place, actually.
0: So they get here to Florida and give the listeners an idea of what happened in the next 24 to 36 hours. It started off by them going to a dive shop, didn't it?
1: Well, my understanding was uh, they got into Miami and might have spent an hour or two in South Beach. And then later on in the afternoon, uh, no, it might have been the Thursday, I guess, they um, they went over to Marco, uh, met Jeff. Jeff had to escort them in because it's a gated community. And from there towards the evening, they went into a dive shop that I believe is in Naples called Sealandia, where they uh, picked up. Um, um, tanks, oxygen tanks and whatever else they needed to complete their equipment for for the dive the next day.
0: What equipment did they bring with them and what equipment did they have to rent once they got to Florida? Uh,
1: I believe they brought the dive suits with them Um, whether I'm not sure about the BCDs whether they brought that with them or they rented it from Sealandia but uh, definitely they rented the tanks
0: so they rented the tanks, and they talked to the people at the dive shop.
1: Right. Then the, the next day, they went to the marina to get Jeff's boat. And Jeff, they got on the boat, took it out, and the boat seemed to be overheating for some reason. And this boat had two motors on the back of it. So they went back in and had a mechanic look at it. And the conclusion was there might have been a bag or something caught on one of the engines. Anyways, the problem uh, went away, they were told. And they are also given some uh, replacement parts in case it occurred again. So that set them back an hour or so. Uh, they then left the marina. And that's the last time anybody saw them leaving the marina. Now, now according to what Jeff told us, they went from there to a place called Barge, which I think is about ten miles off the coast, and it's sort of like a sunken ship. So they went there not to dive, but to get some bait fish because they were also going to fish, apparently. And so they got this bait fish, and once they had this bait fish, they then proceeded, uh, let's say, another fifty miles out on the water to this California Bar wreck, which was a, a wreck of a uh, from the Second World War of a. Uh, of a, a supply ship sunk by a German U-boat, and it was in about 100, 110 feet of water, apparently, with still a lot of the original equipment, jeeps and stuff, still on the deck of the ship. So they proceeded out there, um, and while they were out there, um, they, uh, I think, got there, one o'clock, something like that, supposedly, and they uh, fished, for a while, and then around 2.30, they decided to um, dive, to dive this wreck. And so the uh, they went down in two pairs. There was Kent and o- um, Omar as one pair, and Jeff and Dave as another pair. And they went down to dive the wreck. Now, I th- I think one of the things, and I'm not a diving person, but I guess when you get down 20 to 30 feet, you have to... Uh, equalize the air in your ears I guess that means stay in that position for a little while and let your body uh, uh, acclimatize to that so when they got down to that position um, Kent was having trouble making adjustments and uh, it got to the point where they felt no he couldn't go further so Kent and Omar came back up to the boat and uh, Jeff and David continued to the bottom to, to look at the wreck. So they're going up, uh, Jeff and David go down, and they're down on the bottom for about another 10 or 12 minutes, because I think at that depth you can only dive for about 15 minutes in total, and then they come up. In the meantime, again, apparently what happened was when uh, Umar and Kent surfaced, so they'd been off the boat, who knows, five minutes, Uh, they surface, they get on the boat, back on the boat. And when they're back on the boat, they suddenly find that this boat is is filling up with water somehow. And uh, before they can do anything, try and start the boat, it won't start, then the boat apparently flips over. I say apparently, because this is what we were told.
0: At this point, I think the listeners need to know that everything that Bill is talking about here is what Jeff Wandich told Bill, the rest of his family, the other families, the Coast Guard, and any other law enforcement agency that was involved in this case, in this disappearance, this is what Jeff Wandich told all of them. There's no proof that any of this is true. It may very well be true. But everything that Bill is saying here is from the mouth of Jeff Wandich, the survivor of this incident. Bill, please continue.
1: So, uh, when Jeff and David. Reach the surface, they look around and all they see is the bow of the boat, about three or four feet of it, sticking up in the water. The rest is submerged. And they look beyond the boat uh, 50 to 80 yards and they see Kent and Omar uh, who, when they, when the boat capsized, they jumped off and they grabbed their uh, BCDs, their buoyancy compensators uh, and were hanging on to these. So Jeff swam over to them Help them get their tanks off because the tanks at this point were weight, and 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 put the buoyancy compensators on, and then so it's like a life jacket. And then they come back to where the boat is sticking out of the water, where David had gone and had grabbed the line from from the boat and was holding on to it. So now we have all four of them sort of around the uh, the boat. And then the story comes out, hey, what happened? Tell us what happened. And so what I've just told you is what Jeff said he got from Omar and Kent when they were around the boat.
0: And the boat was staying in place because the anchor was still anchored to the bottom.
1: It was anchored to the bottom right with the line to the bow. And, and so, so there they were. They're, they're having this thing. So now they're saying, all right, here we are. What do we do? Um, and in the process, they, they did two things. One, um, I guess, uh, my son, David went down and released, they had a bag of uh, bait fish, right? And they released the bag of bait fish and the theory that it would, the current would carry it away and therefore not attract bigger fish. Number one. The second thing that <clears throat> Dave did is he went down apparently and tried to look in the, uh, console for the flare gun. Which he didn't find, so he came back up, and that was the end of that. Uh, and they they stayed huddled around this boat for um, about three hours. And suddenly, I guess just as night was coming, the boat finally uh, sunk, it went the rest of the way underneath the water, and you know went straight down to the bottom. David had been uh, tied had himself tied to the boat with a, uh, a rope or a line, uh, and he was being pulled down. Jeff uh, said he went under, cut the line to release David, and now the boat goes down. So the four guys are, are sitting there, and they have no choice at this point but to try and go to a, um, a tower. There is a Coast Guard or military tower, I guess you would call it, about 75, 80 feet above the water, uh, about four miles away. And there's a series of towers that the military used to use, and it's got a light on it. And they figured that was the only place they could go, so they began swimming towards this tower. So we have these four guys with their uh, life jackets or BCDs on swimming towards this tower, and it's getting dark. Now, at this point, they start swimming, and I guess it's getting dark, and the waves are three to four feet, and Jeff sees a, a light on a boat that he thinks is gonna passing within a few hundred yards. And and he said two different versions of this. He said, one, he saw lights on the boat, he started to swim towards it for 25 seconds, 30 seconds, then figured he couldn't make it, came to come, come back, and when he went to come back, the other guys were gone. He couldn't find them in the, in the waves in the dark. Uh, another uh, time, what he has said was that he was really nervous, and, and he didn't want the guys to see him crying, so he just sort of swept, swam over a wave <laughs> so he could cry for a second and then come back, and when he went to come back, uh, the guys were there. Anyways, at this point, these guys were no longer visible to him. Or he didn't know they, where they were. So he began swimming towards this tower. And at some point on a swim to the tower, he decided to take off his buoyancy compensator. He thought maybe that was putting drag on him. And uh, so he, he took that off and kept swimming and swimming and swimming. And eventually, he made the tower. Um, so, he got to the tower, he climbed up on, uh, There's, I guess, a series of platforms on it, climbed up on a platform. Uh, apparently, uh, now, if you go back in time, of course, no one knows. These guys aren't there. It's getting to be 7, 8 o'clock, and all of a sudden, the family's getting concerned. The family sure. is phoning people, phoning the Coast Guard. Now, apparently, sometime during the night, uh, a helicopter did come by this tower, But when he shone the light in the water, not on the tower, Jeff says they didn't see him and they went away. And and thereafter was a number, uh, about 36 more hours until another helicopter came by and looked on the tower and saw Jeff in order to rescue him.
0: So this was the point at which Kent, Omar, and your son David disappeared. The four of them were at this boat, which is called the Siesta. It sinks. The four of them start swimming, and at some point Jeff gets separated from the other three by one way or the other. He is the one who makes it to this military tower out there in the Gulf. He climbs up onto the tower. The three other young men don't make it for whatever reason. What happens next?
1: Well, in the meantime, while this was happening, the uh, Coast Guard Sent out some boats and helicopters, and they initially went to the wrong place. Apparently, there's two sunken reps out, wrecks out there. One's called California, the California, other one's called the California Baja. These guys are on the Baja. The Coast Guard originally went to the uh, the Baja itself. Now, this one they went to was about six miles away from the previous one, and it took about a day to solve that problem. Now, the only Good news about that is, the wrong boat was downstream from where the boys were. So, in other words, if the current was carrying them, it should have been carrying them sort of, more or less, towards that location.
0: Toward the location that was the wrong location.
1: Right. But then, when they found out it was wrong, they went back to the first location and and they started, you know, their regular search. And and of course, their search consists of many things, like a grid pattern. Uh, and they also drop boys in the in the water and check them so they can figure out what the you know from time to time what the uh, the current strength is etc. you know they they do a bunch of things like that. So they did that uh, and st- and kept searching. Uh, then they found, uh, like I say, thirty six hours, Jeff later, and found out the the stuff uh, you know from him what happened. So they continued this search, and over the next several days we found a lot of stuff from the boat like a like a couple of tanks a milk jug uh, a bag a camera bag with a camera in it this was uh debris that belonged to jeff's boat let's say and it was all in the current pattern that you would expect you know along for about 10 miles or so so we kind of got uh proof that that a current was flowing in a certain direction and it would carry things that way okay but in that time we didn't find anything of the other three guys
0: not a wetsuit, suit not a bcd not a diving mask not even a fin for their feet nothing like that
1: nothing at all yeah and that that was sort of the that's the nub of this mystery like why didn't we find anything? Well, we we know the starting point, and we also know uh, that we found other things, right? So yeah. th- that's what was curious about this.
0: Bill, can you convey to the listeners your side of this? What were you doing at the time? How did you find out that David was missing? Were you worried?
1: Well, uh, it was. Uh, I guess this happened on a uh, Friday, uh, late Friday night. So the Coast Guard, et cetera, was finished their first uh, sweeps, et cetera, by Saturday afternoon. So you might say almost a day after the boys had been missing. And I was just about to take my youngest son, uh, Matthew, who was 17 at the time, to his hockey game when I got a phone call. And the phone call was from Omar's mother, who had been called by uh, uh, Jeff Wantage's people who had said, hey, these guys are missing. So, I mean, I heard that. I was in shock. I, I just uh, dropped everything, went to the bank, got a bunch of U.S. money while my wife was making me uh, plane reservations. And um, I believe I was down that night or early in the Sunday morning. can't remember when. So I went right down there then and stayed down there for about three weeks.
0: When you got down here to Florida and you started hearing about some of the details of what happened, and knowing your son's diving expertise, which wasn't lengthy, did you, were you just a little surprised how far these young men were out into the Gulf?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was shocked. Like, I, I mean, I knew these guys, at uh, least oh, David. He was a very athletic guy, and, and you know, he, but he was a new diver. And I figured they'd go somewhere and dive 30, 40 feet of water, You know, probably a couple of miles offshore. When I heard it was, hey, 60 miles and 100 feet, like, you know, I I was just dumbfounded.
0: So you get down here to Florida. I'm guessing some of the family members of the other young men who disappeared are already here. I think that the Wandich family, Jeff Wandich's parents, were already here as well. What do you remember them saying? What do you remember the law enforcement saying? What do you remember the Coast Guard saying?
1: Well, what happened is I came into Fort Myers. Because Fort Myers is where the Coast Guard station is. And, and if you know the area, you know, Marco's, I don't know, 40 or 50 miles from Fort Myers, something like that. So uh, Jeff's people were in, in uh, Marco, and I really did, didn't see them until after Jeff was found. I, I just got a place in uh, Fort Myers close to the Coast Guard station on Fort Myers Beach. And that's where the other family members came as well. So all in the Ramada in there. What was the Ramada in there? Uh, going over to the Coast Guard station every few hours to see what the latest was. So that's what we were doing. For the next couple of days, we we're in that mode of uh, talking to the Coast Guard. Then Jeff was found. We heard uh, heard about that, uh, and he went. He went to the hospital, and I think he was at home for a day uh, recuperating. And then he came down and I uh, so I don't know I'm guessing it was four days after this happened, whatever came down to where we were in Fort Myers uh, with his family and talked to us for about an hour and kind of recounted the story that I gave to you.
0: How were you feeling at that time? Given what you knew, were you still hopeful that David and the other two young men were going to be found?
1: Yeah, I, I really did. I, uh, I mean, these other guys, mom, well, my son and the other guys were smart kids. They weren't dumb. You know, they're the kind of people you like to have around. If you had an emergency, you knew they'd be creative or come up with something if they're, you know, as long as they were capable or healthy. So yeah, I figured, okay, these guys compared to the average person have a better than better than average chance of, of hanging on or succeeding or whatever. So I was still thinking, Hey, uh, Maybe they're still trying to get to that tower, or maybe they decided to stay together to make a big mass on the water for a search. So yeah, we were quite hopeful then, um, and, and a lot of uh, you know, and around that time, a lot of other uh, speculation came up, speculation, well, hey, maybe uh, these guys have been eaten by sharks, um, maybe maybe they were picked up by somebody else um, and therefore aren't there. These sorts of things were were bubbling up along with rumors that, hey, were were these guys all involved in some sort of a drug deal? And that's what it was, a drug deal. There was all kinds of rampant rumors. And so we tried to distill through the facts and, and, you know, and track what we could. Like, for example, uh, there was a sea captain who was actually out at the Baja, California at midnight that night. So this would have been four or five hours after the, the guys... The boat finally sunk, but he, he anchored out by the Baja, California, and we talked to him, but he didn't see or hear anything, that's what he said when he was out there. So,
0: Did Jeff ever say anything about a boat pulling up to the wreck and anchoring while he was waiting on that military tower four miles away? Because I'm guessing that if he and the other three young men could see the tower while they were in the water, then Jeff would be able to see a boat pulling up to the wreck from the tower.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, Jeff said that he saw uh, four or five boats, like you call them shrimp boats, going by, but none of them came to the tower, right? But he said he saw four or five boats, but none of them came by the tower.
0: The listeners may need to be reminded that you weren't hopeful just because these were young men who were decently physically fit. All of them if Jeff Wondich is to be believed, all of them were wearing these BCDs, these flotation devices. They look like vests. Actually, they're excellent flotation devices that all scuba divers wear. All four of them allegedly had them. And in fact, with those devices, they'd be able to float for a long time, if not forever, even if they weren't alive.
1: Right. This is, this is exactly why it's mysterious. If these. Uh, boys are wearing these things, and they got to be on top of the water, sort of alive or dead. they got to be on top of the water. And if they somehow rigged it so they were together, then you have a fairly large mass, okay, compared to some of the stuff we found. So you're know, more easily sighted, yeah, I might say. And if they weren't together, <laughs> then you got three shots at, at hitting something. So it did seem that, hey, we, we're going to spot something. We should be spotting something.
0: What was the Coast Guard telling you at this time? Were they giving you reasons to be hopeful that David and the two other young men would be found? What were they saying?
1: Well, yeah, I think uh, I had a feeling they never said this. that They were just a little surprised they didn't find something because they they had their boat out there and uh, helicopters and a couple of uh, planes going by, and they were looking. And and then, uh, you know, as I look back now, after 4 or 5 6 days they were saying to us look you know we're we're a search and rescue uh meaning <laughs> not recovery of, of dead bodies is the meaning I took from that so when they felt there was no hope they were going to wind things down now um we especially uh Omar's uncle we uh, got involved we tried to uh, dig up some statistics from friends we had on on hyper you know, in universities and stuff on hypothermia, et cetera, uh, to present the case to say, look, these guys still could be alive, you know, dehydration and all that. Taken, there's still a chance there's a life. And, and I think the Coast Guard then did relent and continue the, uh, the search for another two days, which we really appreciated. Uh, by the way, I should add.
0: Most of the listeners probably don't know this, but I live on the Gulf Coast. I live in Madeira Beach which is right on the Gulf Coast. Uh, Where this disappearance happened is about three hours south of where I live now. And I can tell you, I've been in the Gulf of Mexico in November. I wouldn't say that the water is warm, but surely you would not get hypothermia from it within 36 hours. I don't believe. Uh, In contrast, I guess the most well-known case is the Titanic, where people went into the water there and died within a few hours because of the water being so cold. So the Coast Guard is continuing to search, but how long did that go before they ended their search? And I know we're going to get into this in part two, but what was Jeff Wandich saying? Was he taking part in the search?
1: Well, I think the, the Coast Guard continues to search, and, you know, I haven't tracked this exactly, but probably six days, seven days, something like that. So in the process, uh, three or four days into it, I guess once Jeff is... Re, uh, Back home and sort of re- recovered a bit
0: yes maybe we need to talk about that what condition was jeff in when the coast guard found him
1: well uh when i saw him you know it's hard to say it didn't look too bad but he had a day to recuperate but uh I apparently had some sunburn i don't know if that was from being on the tower or from before he was on the tower because i didn't see him before but uh, he didn't appear, you know, to be, have a lasting uh, derogatory effects. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I, and when I, when I saw him, I didn't have, uh, you know, he didn't appear to be wiped out, you know, when he came down to see us and he did, uh, I know apparently his dad hired a helicopter, I was told. And I think Jeff went out with, maybe the guy in the helicopter uh, for a bit. I don't know how long they were out for. And I know that Jeff's father also hired a, uh, a sea captain, a boat, you know, to go out for a few days to look around. And, and Jeff started out with that sea captain.
0: But after they found that flotsam, I guess that's what you call it, that milk jug, uh, the camera case and some other things, uh, those items you already mentioned, they didn't find anything, did they?
1: No, after five or six days, they didn't find any more. And you could argue maybe there wasn't any more to find other right. than the boat, which, was, which, which also in that period of time, the boat was raised, and it had sunk on top of the uh, California Baja.
0: Yes, it's probably a good time to talk about that. How did the raising of the boat come about? Well,
1: what happened is apparently, you picture this boat is out there and it's anchored, such that the uh, the boat itself is uh, the CS is right on top of the California Baja, which is I don't know a few hundred feet long. This boat, and when it sunk, it went straight down. Well, two things happened when it first sunk into the water, but the bow was still sticking up. Some stuff like fishing rods and uh, a tool chest, etc., just fell down on the bow. Then when the boat itself sunk. It went down, and it landed upside down on the Baja. Um, Now, this is also 60 miles out from the coast, so that's international waters. And apparently, there's a law that says if something is sunk out there and it's not anchored, then it can be salvaged by anybody. So a salvager uh, by the name of Dave Satterfield from Marco, after several days, he went out there. Uh, with his crew in his boat and he went to the bottom and raised the siesta okay from where it was and brought it up to the uh, the top
0: he did this on his own he wasn't asked by the one to choose to do this he wasn't asked by the coast guard the salvager found out about a boat sinking and thought hey i can make a couple bucks if i go out there and bring it back to the surface
1: exactly now the coast guard knew he was going and they were there watching him. <laughs> Okay. Um, I don't even know if they were filming it, but they didn't do anything. So uh, he he brought this and his crew brought this boat up and towed it, and it, it was no problem. Once they got it up, you know, it floated, and he towed it into shore. And he also found, I think, a couple of tanks, uh, air air tanks that were down there that hadn't been used. So he takes it back to his place in in uh, Marco and immediately starts taking things apart because of the engines. Uh, had been in salt water, right? So apparently if you don't start cleaning them real fast, the engine gets destroyed. Sure. So the net effect of that was, um, it kind of destroyed the chain of evidence, if you will, because later on there were questions about, uh, well, were the bilge pumps working? Like, why did it sink? Were the bilge pumps working? Yes or no? Well, the battery was off, but who turned the battery off? Was it off? When the boys were out there, or did one of the the divers who salvaged the boat, you know, accidentally or otherwise turn them off the switch, you know? So all that stuff was gone, that potential evidence.
0: And the reason that is, is because the sinking was viewed as an accident. In fact, it's viewed as an accident to this day. There was no reason to do any forensics on the boat, for the Coast Guard to go on there and see if everything was working. Because they just thought, well, it's just a simple accident. And even more so, they actually thought that your son and the other two men were still going to be found.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, like yeah. Um, you know, like we're just at least speaking for myself. I'm just a, an average person who, mm. who does those things, and I don't look for anything devious or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I figured, hey, this is just a terrible, tragic event. Let's try and salvage it, you know? Yeah. I wasn't looking for anything uh, otherwise.
0: I guess what I'm saying is at the time that the boat was raised, you didn't think that that was unusual because you thought that your son and the two other young men were going to be found. It's only since then, all these years later, now that they haven't been found, that maybe you look back on that and say, you know what, that boat should have been looked at a little more closely. At the
1: time, there was something twigging at me. You know, I mean, I might be an average guy, but I don't think I'm that stupid. And I'm saying, hey, people are missing here. Uh, boat's on the bottom. This guy is raising, a salvage. is raising a boat and the coast guard's there. Why isn't the coast guard taking it? You know, like for all I know, uh, you know, somebody, some pirates could have come by and shot the boat uh, full of holes. You know? Yeah. So yeah. I'm saying to myself, well, why isn't this in custody? But then I'm saying to myself, well, you know, I'm not the coast guard. They probably, you know, know what they're doing or the other powers that be and uh you know what you find out later is well the coast guard's got a certain level of of jurisdiction but there's no other law enforcement that has any jurisdiction with the exception of maybe the fbi so really you know the local people aren't there saying hey something's wrong here let's do it this way or that way they have no say so yeah. uh, and my feeling was you know that was a, a loose end it was unfortunate mm-hmm. but
0: you are on this program, but there are two other families, the Monroes and the Shearers, who also lost sons. What were they saying at the time? What do you think they were feeling at the time? Do you remember, uh, if you can say, if you feel comfortable talking about that?
1: They were pretty well as much uh, very similar, I guess, to the way I was saying things. I know that um, Kent's sister was very vocal she was very concerned she was very hard on the, um, on the uh, Coast Guard and and then on Jeff you know long before I, I was looking in either of those directions asking a lot of questions you know fairly blunt questions.
0: How did you feel about that at the time? Did you think that maybe she was a little out of line given that you all still thought that Omar Kent and David were going to be found?
1: Yeah, she, yeah, you know, I hate to admit it, but she probably had maybe better instinct than me. I said, holy smokes, I just want to find these guys. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to start accusing the guys who are doing the searching, you know, of not doing their job. Maybe they'll stop. I don't want that. So I, I would have rather just, you know, hey, just keep looking, et cetera. And, and then when we have more facts, then we can decide to say things or not say them anyway. So I was a little slow off the mark on that one.
0: Bill, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about that. Um, You had to go by what the Coast Guard was saying. You had to believe in them. And In retrospect, I guess they did do as much as they could, but please do not beat yourself up too much about that all these years later. So regarding the search, when did it end, and what did you end up doing after that?
1: Well, um... Finally, we, we, we got to a point where the, the Coast Guard had, um, had, uh, done their thing, you know, had, had ended their search and, um, the, the, I had heard that the FBI was going to be involved and look at things. Uh, I tried to talk to them, of course, you know, it's very difficult to talk to, to the FBI if you're, you know, an average person. Um, but they just said, you know, they will say we'll tell you maybe when we'll tell you. So we got to the point of saying, all right, there's not much more we can do here. And, and also during that time, uh, we were very fortunate in that many, many friends and family had started a fund for us. So we had hired a lot of boats and planes ourselves privately to do this search you know, over this two to three weeks. Uh, so not only was the Coast Guard searching, we had uh, our own planes and helicopters and boats searching. So after two to three weeks, you know, that was, that was also done. So we said, hey, we can do better by going back home and working from there. So that's what we did. We packed up and went home.
0: Do you look back at it now and say that maybe things would have gone a little differently if you had been an American and not Canadian?
1: No, I think, I, I think, I, I probably, if I had any difficulty, it probably would have been the same as an average American. In other words, I'm an average guy, an average family, and most Americans are average, in mm-hmm. average families. If I was John F. Kennedy Jr., I would have had, you know, a lot more resources committed to.
0: Yes, the plane crash from the late 1990s, of course.
1: So, you know. I mean, I appreciate the help that we did get. and would like to have had, you know, even more. But uh, And there was a lot of things we did, you know, but uh, I don't think there was any discrimination against me at all as being a Canadian.
0: Bill, while you were down here, while the other families were down here, what kind of support did you get from the Fort Myers people, the Marco Island people? I'm talking about just the residents of both of those areas in regards to your son and the other men's disappearance.
1: You know, thanks for asking that, Ed, because I really must emphasize that we were overwhelmed at the generosity and support of the people down here. It was just incredible, the local business people and the local people. For example, the Ramada Inn, where we stayed and set up our command post, set up special communications for us, and significantly discounted our costs. A local attorney, well-known attorney, handled all our legal affairs. Gratis, wouldn't accept any payment at all. A local restaurant sent us uh, meals daily. Also, many local people volunteered their boats, their planes in some cases, believe it or not, and even uh, volunteered to be spotters on the planes and boats that, uh, that we hired and participate in the search. And I just can't tell you how uplifting that was to all of us at this particular time in our lives. So thanks for asking.
0: That's great to hear that virtual strangers could give you support, the rest of those families' support, in probably the toughest time in all of your lives.
1: Yeah, that's right. That, that is absolutely right. And Ed, you know, some other time when we're talking, I can give you some examples that are interesting and would kind of blow you away.
0: The Coast Guard completed their search, and at any time at that point, or ever since then, have they ever given you any reason that your son, David, Kent, and Omar were never found.
1: No, they just said, you know, we normally, you know, expect to find something, but there are cases sometimes we don't, and this is one of them. We're very sorry about it. We don't, you know, have good reason to continue. That was kind of it. Like we did get, you know, a letter from them, something along those lines, right? So, uh, you know, I really couldn't blame them as far as any detail I, I think it was a year or so later, whenever it was, under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, I asked for the documentation uh, from the Coast Guard, and there was about two inches of it, and you know, a lot of it was redacted, but a lot of it was also very, uh, you know, uh, you know, di- um, directional stuff. Here is the direction we went. Here is the time. Here is the sounding. Here is the current. You know, that sort of stuff. Well, oh, we found this thing here. We found that thing there. Those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, uh, uh, oh, they didn't give me a, you know, a lot of detail, but maybe there wasn't more to
0: give. I ask because here in the United States, we have the NTSB and the FAA. And had this been a different situation where it was a plane crash instead of a boat sinking, that the NTSB would come in and investigate. They investigate any plane crash that happens in the United States. But it doesn't sound like you got any kind of report like that from the Coast Guard in this case. They probably just limited that to big ships, tankers, cruise lines, um, organizations, companies like that. So you never got any official report?
1: Not that I'm aware of, no. And I don't know if that's a practice for when there's a a boat issue or not. Mm -hmm. Or at that time, it was just 22 years ago.
0: That's a topic I should probably look into because I do know that the NTSB and the Coast Guard do get together on certain cases, but uh, obviously not small craft like this, but I would think maybe they might get involved if somebody went missing or somebody actually got killed in a boating accident. Myself and the listeners may have to look into that for you. One final point in this part one of this discussion in Vanished in the Gulf. You've been working on this ever since, haven't you? Since your son disappeared in 1994.
1: Right, right. Off and on, yes.
0: And that was the first part of the interview I conducted with Bill Madot regarding the disappearance of his son David, Kent Monroe, and Omar Shearer. You should know that Bill is going to be returning for Part 2 next week. Between now and next week, if you choose to look into this case a little bit more, I hope you find that Bill and I cover the facts as unbiasedly as possible. And you should know that's not easy for Bill to do. He's a very passionate advocate for his son, for Kent, for Omar. But I wanted to do it that way because I know most of you are not familiar with this disappearance and I wanted you to look at it in in the most unbiased of ways. Don't worry, next week we're going to get into a little bit more of the particulars you may even call them contradictions But in the end, you are the jury. You are going to get to decide whether Jeff Wantich is telling the truth or not. Regarding Jeff Wantich's account of what happened on November 4th, 1994, and given that this is the episode where we defend his story, there are some facts that should be put into evidence that you should keep in mind as you continue to think about this disappearance. Point number one. I'm going to read off some names to you, and I'm pretty sure you've never heard of any of these men. Timothy Allen Atkins, Edward S. Cody, Victor Marquis Cooper, Charles L. Dillon, Charles Jacob Persho, Robert Richard Remmer, Barry Vincent Rodden, Ulysses Hanoi Roldan, Corey Dominic Smith. Do you know who all of those people are? They just happen to be all men. These are all men who have gone into the Gulf in the last approximately 30 years and never came back. And these are just the men in the Tampa area. This does not include the area that extends up to Pensacola in the panhandle of Florida. It does not include any names, any people who disappeared in the Gulf going down toward the area of Marco Island and Fort Myers. In each of these cases, these men were out in the Gulf for scuba diving, fishing and or boating and looking into every one of these disappearances I've read the account of each of these disappearances on charlieproject.org I'm not sure anything suspicious was alleged in any of these cases in fact of these disappearances the one that I found the most interesting was the disappearance of Edward S. Cody he disappeared offshore scuba diving Nine miles from where I sit, right at this second, right off the coast of Madeira Beach, Florida. Nine miles out. His body was never found. And among those nine names, Edward S. Cody is not the only one who died while scuba diving. There was at least one other case. I forget which one of those men also disappeared during scuba diving. But they were wearing essentially the same equipment that David, Kent, Omar, and Jeff were wearing... These men also disappeared. Of course, Jeff did not disappear. So just because somebody has scuba gear on does not mean that they can easily be found if the Coast Guard goes out and starts to search for a person who had an incident while scuba diving. And reading off that list, we learn that Being out in the water, it is a dangerous place. It's much more dangerous for humans to be out on the water than to be on land, just like it's more dangerous to be driving a car than flying in a jet. Look at what happened to that Miami Marlins pitcher, Jose Fernandez, from last fall. Of course, he had alcohol in him. A toxicology report showed that he also had cocaine in him. But he was out there with two other friends, and... ...at night, and they ran right into a jetty. All three of them got killed. The water can be a dangerous place. And every body of water on Earth... ...has stories of men and women... ...going out there and never coming back. So the disappearance of David Middot, ...Omar Shear, and Kent Monroe... ...if you look at it from that point of view... ...is not that odd... These things are happening every day all over the earth. Point number two. The Coast Guard and law enforcement agencies had an opportunity to interview Jeff Wandich when he came back to shore. He sat down with them for many hours, and there's no evidence that the Coast Guard or any of those entities thought Jeff Wandich was lying at all. After he told them what happened... They were satisfied that this was just a horrible accident, even though the Coast Guard never could explain why they couldn't find the three other men floating in the Gulf, despite them allegedly having their BCDs on, which means they could have floated for an extended period of time, days if not weeks. Yes, Jeff Wondich's story feels a bit incomplete. We don't have all of the answers, but for a person like himself... It was a traumatic experience for him if things happened the way he said they happened. We can maybe compare this to 9-11, those people who were in the World Trade Center towers who managed to survive. Those people will never be the same. And I'm sure if you were to be able to talk to one of them, they would have gaps in their memory as well because that day was so traumatic. Whereas somebody like myself, who lived in Las Vegas at the time— I remember every second of that day. In fact, it's like yesterday, but I did not suffer the same kind of trauma that those people who were on the scene did. Furthermore, everything that wasn't found by the Coast Guard is exactly what Jeff said shouldn't be found. Wetsuits, BCDs, among other equipment. He claimed that the three other men had those things on, they were wearing them. The men weren't found, and neither were those items, so that kind of goes in line with what Jeff has said since 1994. I further ask, is it plausible that Wandich cooked up the story while he was on that tower for however long, and his story just happened to go along with what could be discovered by the Coast Guard afterwards? And I remind you. He was on that tower, but he couldn't have been sure if he was ever going to be rescued. In fact, you could say that he was that he was rescued alive is a little bit of luck. So would he have been sitting there on that tower, fearing that he might not get rescued, that he might die on that tower? But on the other hand, at the same time, trying to concoct, I guess what you'd call a lie in his head, if he was rescued. That's just a little hard to imagine to me. Fearing that you're going to die and concocting a lie if you're discovered alive seem like the polar opposites of thinking. I think that you'd be one way or the other. In summation, being that I'm playing Jeff Wandich's defense attorney for this episode, Jeff was the one who was experienced. He was the experienced boater. He was the experienced diver. The three others were not. And it very well could be that they all went into that water, and once they started swimming toward that light tower, that Jeff, although it seems maybe for a second he kind of lost his head, lost his confidence, but he regained it back and managed to swim to that tower while the other three, not being ex- experienced, started to panic, and they might have made a rash decision that caused them to drown in the Gulf, and that's the reason that they were never found. Also, regarding how the boat sank, it's very possible, given that the boat seemed to have had a problem before they even left the marina, this issue of the engine overheating, that there was some other problem with the boat that was not obvious until they got out there. They went down into the water, and then minutes later, the boat starts to sink. Just because the boat ended up at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico and that David, Kent, and Omar were never found does not mean that something suspicious happened. It very well could have been that the boat sank for a very good reason, even though that reason could not be determined once the siesta was brought back to the surface. To conclude this summation in my defense of Jeff Wandich and his story, what are we saying here? Are we saying that Jeff Wandich... Murdered, Kent, David, and Omar. That's the only reason that I could come up with that he would ever lie about what happened out there. Anything else would be an accident, and that's exactly how he has explained what happened on November 4th, 1994. And it's a little hard to understand why he would want to get rid of those three other men since they were all friends. They planned this trip together. They went out in the gulf together. They agreed to go fishing and scuba diving together. Then he turns around and gets rid of those three. Even a scenario where somebody else did something to David, Omar, and Kent, and Jeff has been ordered or blackmailed to keep it quiet all these years, It's been over 20 years. Not even the Mafia has that kind of loyalty. And that concludes my defense of Jeff Wandich and his story as to what happened on November 4th, 1994. I now leave the investigation in your hands. What do you think happened? Is there anything in Jeff's story to this point that makes you feel like it is believable or unbelievable? Because next week, as I told you, you'll be hearing from Bill Medot again. You're going to find out some other things have been discovered. You're going to hear about some of the facts I personally discovered on my own about diving the Baja California, about boat GPS, and an important boating requirement that could play into this case that Bill had never heard about until I discovered it, and it may have played a factor in the actual sinking of the boat. But all of that will be next week, as we continue to discuss Vanished in the Gulf. I thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I urge you to go to iTunes and give Unfound a great review. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.